your day-to-day is likely to be full of many decisions. Lots of small decisions you're going to have to make today. What last-second gifts do you need to pick up from the store? What little side dishes do you still need to buy for your Christmas meal? You're going to have to be thinking of those things to do to get ready for Christmas tonight and tomorrow. But the thing is, is that even though you might feel overwhelmed with those decisions this morning, in fact, you might even be sitting here right now still thinking through those decisions and chores and things that you need to do after church, as important as they may seem to you right now in this moment, the decisions that you make today and tomorrow likely are not going to have an impact for very long because gift cards are going to be spent quickly and leftovers are going to be, most of them, eaten quickly. And the decisions that we have to make today and tomorrow, like most decisions that we make on a daily basis, are not going to have impact for a very long time. In fact, there is only one decision that you can make that is going to have an impact forever. Not just for the rest of your life, but for the rest of your eternity. This one decision is going to be the decision that you think about over and over again when you're sitting or laying on your deathbed. It's going to be the decision that completely encompasses you the moment after you die and you open your eyes to wherever you wake up to. The one decision that is going to have an eternal impact is going to be the decision that could still impact the children and the grandchildren that you leave behind. It's the one legacy that you ultimately will leave that will have lasting value. And that one decision is the decision about who you believe Jesus is. That's the decision. That's the question that each and every one of you, whether you're here for the first time or you've been coming for 20 years, you have to decide who is Jesus. Most of you might think, well, I already know the answer to that question. That's something that you decided long ago when you were a child. It's something that you assume you already know the answer to. But I want to challenge that this morning. Because my observation is that most Americans fall into one of four traps, into ways that they misunderstand who Jesus is. Because there's many Americans that when they answer the question, who is Jesus, They believe that Jesus is just some kind of heavenly insurance agent. That in a moment of crisis, you can call on Jesus, and in your emergency, he can take care of your problems, and once the crisis is averted, you can just put him back in the glove box and forget about him. That's how many Americans think about Jesus. Other people, they think about Jesus, and when they answer who Jesus is, they answer that Jesus is their divine therapist, that Jesus is there to make them feel good, that when they're sad or they're discouraged or they're struggling with their sense of self-worth, just like one might go to a therapist to feel better, people will turn to Jesus. They'll buy little books with cute covers and they'll listen to nice little songs or nice little podcasts about how much Jesus loves you and wants to comfort you and how much he cares about you, not so that you can really do anything about it, but just so that you can feel better. And just like a drug or maybe a glass of wine, people will turn to Jesus to help them with their emotional 
turmoil. That's how some people answer the question of who Jesus is. Other people, when they say who is Jesus, they treat Jesus like a political mascot. That they think they're Christians, but really they're just very passionate conservative Republicans who they care about these conservative values, most of which are biblical values, don't get me wrong. But Jesus is just some kind of cosmic character that they can use as support for what they really care about, which is their own political views. And then finally, and perhaps the most dangerous misunderstanding of Jesus is maybe the kind of Jesus that has brought many of you here this morning, which is the heirloom Jesus, the Jesus that you have inherited from your family, that while your parents were Christians and your grandparents are Christians, so by default, you assume that that must mean that you also are a Christian. And you go to the family reunions, and just like maybe you will later today, you're going to politely bow your head and pray with the rest of the family. And because grandma or grandpa is a Christian, you embrace Christ as some kind of family relic, almost like a little figurine that you might inherit after a family member's death. It's something that is cute, and it brings you sweet memories from your childhood, but this kind of Christ is ultimately something that you can just put on a shelf. And it can give you good memories, and you can move on and live your life. It might be very likely that you sitting here this morning, when you've answered the question of who is Jesus, this eternal question that will have eternal impact, there's a very good chance that you might have answered it one of those four ways. But none of those answers about who Jesus is is the answer that the Bible gives about who Jesus is. And because we are God's people, we feel so convicted that what we believe about God and what we should do in response to God should be totally dependent on what God has said in his word. So this morning, don't take my word for who Jesus is. Don't take even maybe your family member's word for who Jesus is. Ultimately, take God's word for who Jesus is, as revealed especially in Luke chapter 1. So turn with me to Luke chapter 1. God is going to reveal to a woman that no one would ever expect that God would reveal anything to. God is going to tell her through an angel messenger specifically who Jesus is. And by telling Mary, this teenage girl living in Nazareth, who is soon to be pregnant, by telling her who this son is going to be that she is going to give birth to, by telling her specifically who this Jesus is, God is not only telling Mary how she should respond to Jesus, but God is he also telling you this morning. Yes, specifically you this morning. God wrote this also for you so that you could respond to Jesus in the way that God has described him. So in Luke chapter 1, you might know that the first two chapters of Luke are famous for being the birth story of Jesus, the story of the nativity. The past few weeks, we've been looking at each element of the nativity, the shepherds, the magi, the town of Bethlehem, looking at their biblical background, looking at Matthew 1 and Luke chapter 1 and 2. But now we are going to look especially at Jesus. And in Luke chapter 1, verse 31, the angel has come to Mary uh, he has announced to her that God is with her and that she is going to be with child. And specifically in verse 31, 
this angel messenger says this to Mary. The angel says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. This is who Jesus is. If you are to answer the question that will impact your eternity of who Jesus is, it must be this answer meaning that we are going to spend the rest of our time this morning dissecting this specific answer about who Jesus is and how it fulfills all of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. So your first point about who Jesus is is going to be the first statement that is made to Mary, which is that Jesus is the Savior. And you might think, well, how could that be, Pastor Stephen, that The angel calls Jesus the Savior. The word Savior doesn't appear in the passage that we read, you might be thinking. Well, actually it does. Let's look at the passage again. Verse 31, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. That name Jesus is the name Joshua. It was a common name in that time. And the name Joshua, or Yeshua, as it was called in Aramaic at that point in history, the name Jesus means God saves. That's what the name Jesus means. The purpose of names was very important in the Bible. It was very common throughout Scripture that whenever God would announce a pregnancy to a woman, like to Sarah or to Rebecca, or to Rachel, or to Hannah, when God is explaining that there is going to be a baby that is born, it was very common for God not just to give the name of that baby, but to explain what that name meant. You might notice in your devotional reading that when a baby would be born, like the 12 sons of Jacob, every time a baby would be born, the name would be explained. There is purpose behind the name that was given. In fact, even in Matthew, when the angel is speaking to Joseph and tells Joseph that he is going to call his son Jesus, specifically the answer that is given in Matthew 1.21 is it says that you will call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The angel telling Mary that his name would be Jesus held huge implications about who Jesus was. The first interesting aspect of Jesus being called Jesus was not just that he was a savior, but that he was going to be someone who was not esteemed in his community. The the name Jesus was one of the most common names in history in the Jewish community at this time. It was not a unique name. It was an extremely popular name. It's the reason why there are so many graves, actually, of people named Jesus in the first century. It's not because Jesus of Nazareth is in one of those graves. It's because many people at that time had the name Jesus. It's showing Jesus' humility. It's fulfilling Isaiah 53, verse 3, that says, We esteemed 
him not. He was someone who walked by. We didn't turn our head. We didn't notice him. That's one importance of the name Jesus. But even more importantly, by the angel saying that this man would be called Jesus, the angel is saying that this man would be not just a savior, but the savior. Because in scripture, especially in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 27, we can put it on the screen, God in this verse, as well as in many other places in the Old Testament, would tell his people, the Israelites, that he was going to send them a savior. Again and again, he told them that he was going to send a rescuer. That's what savior means. Someone who rescues, someone who plucks someone out of danger, who picks them up and takes them away from trouble. Throughout the Bible, throughout the Old Testament, God told his people that he would send them lowercase s saviors. Whether this was a prophet, whether this was a king, whether this was one of the judges, like in the book of Judges, God would call these leaders of his people who would help them and rescue them out of whatever trouble they were in. He would call them saviors. God is in the business of sending people to rescue his people. That's what God does. But even more so than that, by God calling this boy that Mary was going to give birth to, Jesus, it wasn't just a nice name that started with a J that was common in that time. God is also making a claim about the deity of Jesus. Because even though in the Old Testament we see often that God promises to send lowercase saviors, most of the time God chooses to call himself a savior. In Isaiah chapter 43, verse 11, God says, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no savior. Look at the power of that concept. Besides God, he says, even though he sends little partial saviors, little lowercase saviors, the true savior, there is no one else but God himself. He repeats himself in Isaiah chapter 60, verse 16. Look especially at that bottom part that's highlighted. And you shall know that I, the Lord, this is God speaking, am your Savior and your Redeemer. Redeemer means one who buys back. Like one who goes into a slave market and rescues a slave by buying and paying the price, paying the ransom to give that person his freedom. God says, I am your Savior, I am your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. The Israelites, the Jewish people knew that God alone was the Savior. So for the angel to tell Mary that this boy's name would be Jesus, that his name would be Savior, points to the fact not just that Jesus is the person that God has sent to rescue his people, but that he is also God himself. God is assigning to this boy a name and a title that God said initially only belonged to him. The reason why God can do this is because Jesus is not just a boy in the manger. Jesus is God. From the very beginning of Jesus' birth, he's described as a Savior, not just in being called Jesus, but like what we saw in Matthew chapter 1, the angel explained to Joseph that you shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And even later in Luke chapter 2, verse 11, when the angels go to the shepherds, they say, we bring you good news. It's the word gospel. They say that we bring a gospel to you. We come to proclaim good news of great joy. And what is that news? 
that for unto you is born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Many people don't want Jesus as a Savior. Because for Jesus to be a Savior means that there is something that you need saving from. And people don't want to admit that. For Jesus to come and be a Savior of sin and to acknowledge that means that you first have to acknowledge that you yourself are also a sinner. And many so-called Christians don't like that. People inherently don't like that. Not even churches nowadays like talking about that. They don't want to describe Jesus as a Savior who rescues you from your sin. They want to describe Jesus as this, as this Mr. Rogers kind of guy. This nice guy. No longer a slave to fear. No longer a slave to your, your inner demons and your tor- turmoil. This, this nice little Jesus figure who can come and make you feel better despite your sin so that you can continue on sinning but just not feel so bad about it. We want the kind of Jesus that simply covers the symptoms of sin. We don't want the Jesus that is the antidote to sin. If you want Jesus in your life, if you want to answer correctly about who Jesus is, you have to understand that Jesus was born in a manger, grew up, lived, died on the cross, rose on the third day, specifically to rescue you from your wickedness from the fact that you have fallen short of the glory of God, that even though you have done some good things, that you still fall short of God's holiness, that you have broken God's laws, and because God has created you, you are accountable to God, and you deserve God's judgment, and you need rescue from the punishment that you have earned for yourself of your own sin. The wages of sin is death. That's why the gift of God is eternal life. And the gift that God has given us is the gift of his son, Jesus, a savior. So if you want to follow Jesus and know Jesus and have the right answer about who Jesus is, you have to know that he is a savior, which begins by acknowledging that you're a sinner. Let's go now to the second point. The second point is that Jesus is described by God as the son of God. We see this continue in Luke chapter 1, specifically in verse 32, where it says, He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. That word Most High is used often for God. You just sang to the Most High God when you sang in excelsis Deo. That is to God in the highest. You sang these words just earlier this morning. When you want to know who Jesus is, not just a therapist or a conservative mascot or an insurance agent or an heirloom, you have to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. The problem is, is that phrase, Son of God, has become such a cliche in Christianity that we frankly don't even know what it means anymore. In fact, it has become such a cliche over the course of church history that even non-Christian religious groups have abused the title Son of God to diminish who Jesus is. For example, the Mormons don't believe that Jesus is God. They just believe that he is simply the Son of God, one created by God who is lower than God. That is an incorrect view of who Jesus is. The Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, they also have diminished the role of Jesus. Some even prefer to see him more as the son of Mary than they would 
see him as the Son of God. This is a confusing phrase and a phrase that has been abused and has led to damage in people's hearts and frankly has led people to hell. When the, Mary, when the angel tells Mary that she will give birth to a son and that he will be the son of the most high God, the son of God, what is being referred to is the fact that this person, this son of God, is the representative of God himself. That is the significance of Jesus being the son of God, that he is the chosen one. He is the promised one. He is the one that God said for centuries leading up to this moment that he was going to send as the rescuer for his people. By giving that label, son of God, that is like God putting the spotlight on this baby saying, this is the person. This is the child. This is the rescuer. This is the king. That's what son of God means. That's the significance of it. If you were here last week, you would remember that we spent all of our sermon talking about the importance of motherhood in biblical history. How, uh, how 1 Timothy 2.15 says that the woman shall be saved through childbearing, referring to the role of the mother in giving birth to the way that God would bring about a savior. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God promises to send a son who is going to crush the head of the serpent. I think we have a few examples of this up on the screen, different examples of son or offspring. Genesis chapter 3 is an example. Later on in Genesis chapter 22, we see an example of God telling Abraham that he's going to have a son, he's going to have a descendant who is going to bless all the nations. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promises David that there is going to be a son who is going to be king and who is going to rule forever and ever. And famously, in Isaiah chapter 7, God says that there will someday be a son that he provides who is going to be God himself. He's going to be Emmanuel, God with us. And just like that song that we sang, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, one of the best worship songs we have in the English language today, because it talks about the hope, the, the longing that God's people had in the Old Testament for God to send his son. O come, O come, Emmanuel. God, send your son. This son that was promised to Eve in Genesis 3. This, this son that was promised to Abraham in Genesis 22. This son that was promised to David. Send this son of God. Send this Emmanuel. Jesus being called the son of God is reference to this promise of sons that has happened all the way leading up to this point. Jesus being called the Son of God also refers to the fact that he is someone that has been sent from heaven. In the Old Testament, whenever the plural is used for sons of God, like in Deuteronomy chapter 32 or Job chapter 1, whenever the plural sons of God is used, that is always referring to angels. Always. The sons of God, that phrase, sons of God, it's giving reference to the idea that this is someone who has come directly from heaven. That God used to walk with his people, Adam and Eve, in the cool of the morning in the garden. But sin separated us from God. God is invisible. No one has ever seen God. Yet God, throughout history, has sent messengers. He sent people from heaven. That's actually what the word angel means. The word angel simply means messenger. A messenger from God from heaven. 
And even though those were lowercase sons of God, just referencing to them as created beings sent from heaven, Jesus is not created. He is the uppercase. He is the specific, described in a specific way, the only begotten son, the one and only son who has made the Father known, is what John chapter 1 verse 18 says. That no one has ever seen God at any time, but God has revealed himself through Jesus. Here's the idea that we need to get across from Jesus being the Son of God, which is that because of our sin, there is a great chasm that separates us from the Father. You can't see God because God is holy and you're unholy. You can't be in the presence of God because God is righteous and you're a sinner. But even though there is a great cavern that separates you from God, Jesus is the great bridge builder. Jesus is the bridge that crosses that cavern of sin that gives us access to the Father. He is the one who has revealed who God is. That is what is meant by the Son of God. Turn with me to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2 is one of the most famous examples in the Old Testament where God prophesied that this bridge builder, this rescuer, this Messiah who would reveal himself and save his people would be described specifically as a son. We see that in Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2 is one of the great psalms, one of the great chapters of the Old Testament as it relates to who Christ is. This is David writing. In some ways, these apply in a small way to David, but ultimately they apply to the great son of David, the descendant, the offspring of David, the Messiah that God would eventually send, where we see in verse 6 of Psalm 2, this is God speaking, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, and the ends of the earth your possession. This is amazing because it shows that Jesus was never created. He was never born. He was with God in the beginning. He was always the second member of the Trinity. But for the purpose of Jesus, the, the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity, fulfilling God's role to be king of the world and savior of the world, God says that I am going to call you my son. God specifically chose in the Old Testament to indicate this Messiah with the title of son. Look with me now to 2 Samuel 7. If you've been attending this church for a while this past year, you've noticed that I love making you turn to 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel 7 is the Davidic covenant. And truly, it is one of the bedrocks of the Bible. The way that you understand 2 Samuel 7 will impact the way you understand almost everything else in the Bible. Because 2 Samuel 7 is about David in the son of David that God is going to send as king. David is going to be referenced all the time throughout the New Testament. Even in the birth story, what do we hear over and over again? In the city of David, the son of David, this descendant of David, this root of Jesse. This is how Jesus is described because of what God says in 2 Samuel 7, specifically in verses 12 and 13. 
God promises David that when you are fulfilled, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your son or your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish a throne of his kingdom forever. But look at this next part. God says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. God says that this king that's promised to David, God gives a hint and says that this king that I send to you, I'm going to treat him as my own son. That's a hint about who this Messiah figure is going to be. And look at what he says next. He says, when my son commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men. And you might think, Pastor Stephen, how could that be Jesus? Jesus never sinned. How could God punish his son for iniquity? Because Isaiah 53, verse 6 says that God has led, laid on him the iniquity of us all. That God chose to serve as a father to Jesus, God himself, who he treated as a son. Meaning just as a father disciplines a son when a son misbehaves, that God the Father also chose to discipline Jesus Christ as a son, but not for the, trong, the, the transgressions and the wrongdoings that Jesus did, but for the wrongdoings that you did and that I did. Jesus being the Son of God means that he is God's chosen person. He's the very revelation of God himself, and he has been the person, the only person, the only lamb worthy to serve as a son in your place to receive the discipline from your heavenly father that you deserved but you could not take because Jesus is both completely man and completely God. If you want to believe in the true biblical Jesus, you must believe in the Jesus who is God himself who is the very revelation of all that is true of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And as son of God, you must also see Jesus as the one whom your heavenly father disciplined for your sake. The one who God punished for your wrongdoings. That's the only way to accept the true biblical Jesus that is described in Luke chapter 1. Go back with me now to Luke chapter 1. We'll now finish our passage. And while you're turning there, I'll give you the third and final point, which should be abundantly obvious at this point, which is that Jesus, he is the Savior, he's the Son of God, and he also is the King. Look at how this passage ends. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, who? David, that son that is predicted in 2 Samuel 7. And he will reign over the house of Jacob. Jacob is another name for Israel. Forever and of his kingdom, there will be no end. All throughout Scripture, we see a king promised in the Old Testament. God promised to Jacob in Genesis 35 that from his loins would come a king. In Genesis 49, verse 10, God tells Jacob that in the tribe of Judah, there will be a scepter, a king that rises, who will rule forever. 
In Numbers 24, a, a magi, a false prophet named Balaam says that a scepter shall rise out of Judah, a star shall rise who will lead as king. 2 Samuel 7 describes the son of David who will be born a king. Isaiah chapter 9 says that the government shall be upon this king's shoulders, that he will be wonderful counselor. Isaiah chapter 11 describes that this son will be such a great king that he will even be able to make the wolves lie down with the lambs. That that will be the kind of power that he has of king of this physical earth. That even the animals do what he says because he's the king. That in Daniel chapter 2, when there's this dream that Nebuchadnezzar has of all these empires, that there's going to be this final mountain that consumes it all with one king. And in Micah chapter 5, it says that in the town of Bethlehem, there will be born the son of David who will serve as king. This is all being fulfilled in the birth of Jesus. That he's not just a nice guy. He's not just a Mr. Rogers. He's not just a therapist or a political mascot. He is king. And if even the wolves are going to someday be willing to listen to his decrees and lie down specifically where he wants them to, that means that you have no other choice but also to submit to Jesus as king of your life. You cannot have Jesus in your life where you yourself remain the king. You can't have Jesus as your savior without also recognizing him as the ruler of your life. In the same way, if you look forward to the day when Jesus will be king and set everything right in this world, you will not enjoy Jesus as your political king unless you first repent and put your trust in Jesus as your Savior over your sin. The way that you accept Jesus as Savior and King of your life is by recognizing, first and foremost, that you are a sinner who cannot save yourself. But recognizing that even though you cannot save yourself by fulfilling God's law, that God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to fulfill His righteous requirements for you on your behalf. And that this son, Jesus, even though he was born in a manger, you'll notice that the manger is empty. Because unlike how many of us want to think, Jesus is not a baby anymore. He's not a little person that we can control. He grew up. He became a man. And he died on the cross to take the punishment that you and I deserve. That manger is empty because he took the cross. And you'll notice that the cross is empty because he rose from the grave. He's not there anymore. He's in heaven, and he's coming back to fulfill what was described in Isaiah chapter 11 about his kingship. So if you want Jesus, you have to receive him as king and savior by recognizing you're a savior, recognizing he took the punishment for your sin, and choosing to follow him by faith from, for, by repenting from a life of sin and choosing by faith to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord putting your dependence on him for your salvation. Do this and you will be saved. If you've never done this, you may think you're a Christian, but if you've never put your trust in Jesus Christ, the real Jesus Christ, the real Jesus described by Scripture, if you've never put your trust in him by faith and repentance, then you're not saved. He's not your Savior and he's not your King. But let's celebrate Christmas this year by responding to the true Jesus of the Bible by faith. Pray with me.